You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. I want to share with you this morning about a, what I'm calling a tale of two men. So one man, a man who was rather faithless, who struggled with fear, and out of his faithlessness really became a disobedient man, a man that really was unwise, made rash decisions along the way, that kind of self-centered, very much self-focused that way, in fact, took credit for what other people's work for himself and began blaming some of his own failures on other people. A classic example of faithlessness that we should not follow and compare him to his son who was a faithful man, a man who was faithful and obedient, a man of integrity. And because he was faithful, he was also full of faith. There is a little bit of a difference, right? We're going to talk about that. God doesn't just want our faithfulness, our consistency and our reliability and us following him, but he wants us to step up and be a people full of faith. As we'll see, Jonathan is the son, Saul is his father, King Saul, and Jonathan was a man of action, a man of tremendous courage who saw the bigger picture, who knew that God was the one who ruled over not only his life but the world, and he lived in the light of that, not cowering in fear but in full of faith. In in reality, as Jonathan, even though his father was made king. Israel had asked for a king. In fact, they had demanded from God a king. It's easy to look down our nose and judge them, but we have all put demands in God before, have we not? They demanded a king, and God said, I'm going to answer your prayer. In fact, the answer to your prayer is going to be a part of your judgment. Not every answer to prayer is a blessing of God, friends. When you pray in God's will, in God's way, in God's spirit, it is. Do it in your own way, God says, okay, if you're hell-bent on that, I guess I'm going to have to give it to you. So Jonathan would have made a better king. It's not that God made a bad choice, but Israel got the king, the kind of king that they asked for and were looking for. And so consequently, we see here a couple of chapters that I'm kind of condensing together and just kind of looking at two stories about what it means to have a living faith for us. What does it mean for us today? A couple of years have passed since we met last week, and Saul has developed his army. He's got about 3,000 men. In fact, he's made his son kind of his right man right-hand man, his lieutenant, and he gave a 1,000 men to his son, uh, Jonathan, and one garrison, and he had 2,000 soldiers in his garrison. And Jonathan did what he understood what was going on, and he did what he was supposed to do. He went and attacked the Philistine garrison and won the day. God won a battle. And the Philistines heard about it, and rightfully so. They stepped up and they said, who are these young punk upstart Jews, you know? And so they come threatening. And so literally four miles from where King Saul is with his, two, with his 2,000 men, there are, I believe, like 60,000 chariots, 30,000 horsemen. And it says so many foot soldiers, you can't even count them like the sand of the sea. And he had 2,000 sounds like, well, that's a big army. Not when you're going up against those kinds of numbers, over 100,000, you know, maybe a million people coming to stand against you. And so four miles away, I mean, we're talking an hour's march, two if you're not in shape, right, with armor and everything. I mean, we're in just with an hour, literally, could be avalanche. Saul and his men are afraid. In fact, his soldiers begin draining away, and they begin leaving him. They're in fear. In fact, all of Israel, the Bible says, are hiding in the rocks, in the caves, and in the tombs, in in cisterns, any little hole in the ground they could find because they realize that they have made themselves an offense 
to the Philistines. The Philistines, by the way, this stretch of property, real estate, it's all in the news today. It's the Gaza Strip. It's right there along the, the, uh, the western part, or excuse me, the eastern part of the Mediterranean, right in that same strip of land. The Philistines are not the ancestors to the, to the uh, Arab nations. They're probably more Greek from the other part of the Mediterranean, but it's the same piece of real estate. And so the battle is set. Saul is facing ridiculous odds, natural to be afraid, right? It's a story for our lives. You and I have seen insurmountable odds. We've had the Philistines, you know, at our doorstep in our life, various things that you have faced, and and we struggle, and we begin to be fearful. We begin to be afraid. What am I going to do for myself, my family, all of those kinds of things? A living faith responds not just in a spiritual way when we're worshiping God, trusting Him for our salvation and for our sin, and that's the most important genuine faith, But a living faith is lived out practically in every day and every way of our life. And so we pick up that story here in in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 8. We'll read a few verses here. So Saul is there cowering, and he waited seven days in verse 8, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, that's where he was, and the people were scattering from him. Saul's army was draining away. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. These were an offering, a sacrifice made to honor and to please God, seeking his blessing in life and to deal with sin and all of that. And as soon in verse 10 as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, that's four miles away from where they were, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. I didn't want to do this, but I had to. I forced myself is what he's saying. Uh, I forced myself uh, to and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. And he goes on and says, you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. Remember last week, Samuel gave some very clear rules to the road. He said, look, fear God, serve him, obey him and follow him. And it's all good regardless of how many millions or thousands of people are coming against you, fear Him, serve Him, obey Him, and follow Him. Get to that point in your life where your life is in alignment and follow Him, and it's all good. And Samuel says, Saul, you've done foolishly. You have disobeyed God. He didn't break a a Ten Commandment. He didn't break these other things. He just disobeyed, did not wait for the time appointed, went ahead and offered when it was not his place to do, which was an offense to God as well. And Samuel says, Saul, because you've done this, your kingdom will not be established into your hand. So number one, living faith never takes matters into its own hand. When you and I live out our faith, we never take matters into our own hand. You see, Saul saw the situation for what it was. I got 2,000, and I'm going up against over 100,000. We don't know, half a million people, 500,000. There were so many foot soldiers that they couldn't be counted. They just, 
You know, the, the scouts looked out there and were like, I don't know, they're like ants crawling all over. There's just a lot of people. They estimated 60,000 for the chariots, but there were so many foot soldiers, it was beyond number. It was beyond even recognition. So naturally, Saul did what we do. He became afraid. He wasn't fearing God and serving and obeying Him. He allowed something else to be bigger in his mind. We'll talk about that in a minute. And so he took matters into his own hand, and he offered sacrifices trying to manipulate God. He pulled a move that the Jews did, remember, with Eli, and they, they lost to the Philistines, and so they said, well, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of God. He'll come among us. He'll take care of it. And they, Saul tried to manipulate God, kind of tried to go opposite or do differently what God had already prescripted and what God wanted to do through Samuel and had made it clear, and it wasn't, wasn't fast enough for Saul. It wasn't patient enough to wait on what God was doing. Took matters into his own hands in his own time in his own way and tried to force God, as it were, to manipulate him, to get his favor to stand up against this army. You see, living faith in your life and in my life is a faith in a living Lord Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. And we enter into that relationship with Him through what He did on the cross, not through what we do, not through our, our church or our, our background or our history or our baptisms or our prayers or any of the religious things we do, but simply through trusting what Jesus did on the cross, that He sacrificed our sins. We have that living faith in our life, but that living faith in turns to be lived out of our life. It is to change our life, and we are to live it out practically. And you and I... Every day, we should not be taking matters into our own hand. It puts us in a relationship that we are following what God is doing, doing as Samuel said. We fear God first. We serve Him. We don't get Him to serve us. We serve Him. The engine's in the front of the car, not the back of the car. We obey Him. We follow what He is doing, and we don't try to make something happen in our own world. Our life group this week on Tuesdays, we talked about it. Faith is not an easy thing, is it? It's easy to talk about, and there's portions of it, moments of it that are easy, but if most of us went back, if you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are saved, if you're born again, there was a crisis and decision in your life somewhere along that way that you had to, over time, realize that you were a sinner and you really were giving up yourself to a holy God in heaven. And that is not an easy thing to do. For some people, it takes a long time, and there's a process. Some Very few people, a few kind of get it one of the first times they hear it. But faith, by definition, is difficult because it means that you and I are trusting in something we cannot see. If we were to sit down and watch a football game later on and your team was playing and they're doing well this year and say, do you think your team's going to win? And if they were playing a not-so-good team, yeah, I believe they're going to win. think so. Things happen, you know. Most, most teams on any given day, you know, any team, a good, bad team beats a good team and all of that. But that's, that's different than when it's two minutes to go in the fourth quarter and your team is up by 20 points and ask you, so you think your team's going to win? You're like, what? Of course they're going to win. You know, there's, they'd have to get three touchdowns in two minutes. Like, nobody does that. That is a very different kind of thing. Faith by nature doesn't rely on what it sees in front of itself. 
Faith by nature believes in something that is invisible, something that is not guaranteed, something that is at risk. When we're talking about our faith in God, we're talking about some, the someone that we can bank on, that we can bet on, if you will, that will always come through. But by nature, it's difficult because we are relying and we are trusting in something that we cannot see. And the second part of it, why it's so hard, something or someone we cannot control. And that's why it gets really difficult. We struggle when we're not in control, right? Any of you, I won't ask you, you know, husbands or wives, if you're driving and you're like, slow down, put the windshield wipers on, it's raining, Why put the lights on, do this, right? It's, it's not fun always being in the passenger seat. We don't like not being in control. And so faith by nature means we are trusting in God that He is in control and we are taking the second seat. We are following Him and He's the one in charge. And so Saul did not like what he saw. He wanted to take charge. He wanted to kind of take control because he didn't like what God was doing. And he took matters into his own hands, trying to somehow manipulate God for his own protection, for his own good. And the third reason why faith is so difficult is because it requires you and me to be patient. Who in this room are patient by nature? I don't see too many hands. One, we got one. I want to be your best friend because patience is, is awesome. I am not that patient of a person. I'm not. I, I've learned at times that it's to my best interest to be patient. You know what I mean? But I I'm, I'm really am not. I would rather, you know, I'm not a gardener, but I'd rather be the guy that plants the seed yesterday and three days later we're harvesting, we're done. Like, let's just get on with it. Why do we have to wait? You know, just kind of take care of things and move it forward. If you are a person of faith, you are a person who is learning tremendous patience and endurance through difficult things in life. And that is not easy. Faith is hard, but it's what God calls us to, to not take matters under our own hands. Now be careful, sitting around and being patient is not the same as being passive and not doing anything. Prayer is not a passive kind of activity. We can maybe make it that way. You know, all I can do is know how to pray. Well, that truly is, it's cliche, but that's the best thing you can do. But there's a time to act when God says, get up and go fight the battle. But there's a time that God says, you just need to sit and wait. The odds are too good. I'm going to win this battle, but i got to let it dwindle down a little bit so everybody knows that I am God and you are not. i got to let this picture get a little worse. i got to let this thing fall apart a little bit more so that you just don't think, well, that worked out well, or, oh, we got lucky on that one, or, oh, wow, look at what those incredible few soldiers did to win the day. We beat up on you guys. My team beat your team. God's like, no, I intentionally want this to get a bit worse so that you really are having to be patient, trust that which you can't see, and not be in control, and know that I am God and you are not. So a living faith in your life will day in and day out require you to respond to the God of heaven. Saul did not do that, and he was not a good king as a result of it. Fast forward, so the armies of Israel, or Philistines are there. Why they didn't conquer 
and just go ahead and wipe out Israel. I have no idea why. They had superior numbers. Maybe it was so bad that they knew that these little upstart Jewish nation couldn't do anything to them. But regardless, the next play that we see in chapter 14 is Jonathan is talking with his armor bearer, and he says, let's step up and do something about this. So Jonathan is here in verse 6. The Bible says this. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Jonathan is Saul's son. He had already won a battle with a thousand people, but people are scared, and he knows it. People are leaving, and their soldiers are, are running away. I mean, this is a little bit of a volunteer army. I mean, the king told you what to do, but the king doesn't have an army. He has no authority, and so they're hiding. So Jonathan steps up, and he says in verse 6, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan understood. Even though he looked around and saw the realities, he's like, this is no big deal to God. God doesn't need, whether a lot of people or many people, the numbers are irrelevant. He said, God is not limited. And his armor bearer in verse 7 said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. There's a whole conversation and message in there. When you have that kind of relationship, two men, two people together saying, I'm with you to serve God, that is a phenomenal friendship and relationship. And he said, I am with you, heart and soul. Then John said, behold, here's what we're going to do. We will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them, to this garrison. We're going to show ourselves. Everybody else in Israel is hiding, but we're going to come out of hiding. We're going to show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place. We will not go up to them. We're going to stay here. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hands. That's how we're going to know that God is at work. If they say, come on up, then we're going to know that God has already won this battle. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the story goes on. Jonathan and, and uh, his armor bearer, Nameless, we don't know his name, but they showed themselves. The Philistines said, come on up. We'll show you a thing or two. Come up and play with us, boys. And the Bible says that they got up and they crawled hand and foot, which it meant, what that means is it was so steep that they were kind of having, we call it like if you're hiking and climbing a mountain, it's kind of three points. You always have, you know, like, like a ladder. You got to have two feet or a hand on it. So they're, they're carrying a sword and they're going up this, which is kind of crazy because that's where you put a garrison, right? And they had these things called bows and arrows. You know, they right off the bat are kind of, they're exposed, but they just climb hand and foot, two guys, and they take on and they kill 20 men just at the top of that garrison. A superhero. The original superheroes, by the way, are not Marvel and you know DC Comics and the movies. They're actually God's servants when you read the Bible, but they kill 20 men in an area where they shouldn't have and won the day, and the story continues there. We won't finish. The next thing I want us to recognize for us with the living faith, so this is where it connects with our life, is, is that... Living faith never forgets. It always remembers that God is bigger. Always. I've said that before, but if you don't get that from Genesis to Revelation all the way through, then you're sleeping through the Bible. It never forgets that God's bigger. See, Jonathan understood. He said, look, 
God's not weak because we have such few people and we're hiding in the caves. He knew that this battle wasn't theirs. This battle wasn't about swords. The Jewish, aren't, the Jewish people had a right to be afraid. See, the Philistines controlled the monopoly of all the, the steel and all of the metallurgy that was going on. All they had were like little pitchforks and little you know, hoes to work the ground. The only one who had actual legit weapons of swords was kind of Saul and his guy and Jonathan and his guy. That was it. The Philistines were armed to the teeth. They had chariots and everything under the sun. I mean, this was legitimately, this was not even a, a competition. But Jonathan knew that God, being God, was even over all of that. He knew that the battle belonged to God and that God was bigger than the situation in front of them. Now, folks, we always struggle to see that, do we not? I do. When the battle gets big and the situation's in front of us and we've face this same giant or this same Philistine, you know, last week and the week before that, and here we go again, and it's defeating, and it's just deflating and all of that. But Jonathan's like, God is still bigger. And I don't know what God's going to do, but God is bigger. So let's go give something a shot here and see what God is up to. You see, Jonathan knew that the first battle that he won with a thousand men at his side, he knew that he didn't win that day. He knew that God did. You see, when you know that God is bigger, it means that you never forget that any victory that you have always is God's victory. It's never you. When things are going well for you, it's not you. It's not because you're smarter, you're stronger, or you're you know, more capable or any of that. It's always God. So Jonathan, in his mind, wasn't taking credit for the battle that he had already won. He knew that wasn't him. And likewise, he's like, nothing's changed. Whether well, I got a thousand guys with me or I got one, God is still bigger. That God doesn't need whether it's all of them or it's just one, that He is still bigger. You see, well, some of the things for us as followers of Jesus that we struggle with, especially as we fought some battles and won some battles, is we begin to take credit for some of those victories. Now be careful, because the longer you've known Jesus and the longer you've walked with Him, the more battles and the bigger things that you've seen God do, the more you are vulnerable to begin taking credit for this. So what King Hezekiah did, he was a godly king, did all kinds of good things, but at the end of his days that he had been king a long time, he began to be prideful, and God had to knock him down. Josiah was a king that was so godly. In fact, the Bible says that there were ne was never a Passover celebrated among all the kings. A Passover, unlike anything had been seen by any of the kings until the time of Samuel. And even Josiah, on his deathbed, went into battle against Egypt and did not listen to the words of God through the Egyptian leader that the Bible said was very clear from God, and Josiah ignored it, and it cost him his life. Be careful, because we need to always remember that any victory we win, anything that's going well in our life, anything that's been good, it is not us. And that victory really is God's, and we dare not take one ounce of credit for any of it. The flip side of what we struggle with as Christians is not only continually giving God due in, his, in what happens in our life that's good, but the flip side of that is we struggle to accept the bad. We struggle to accept the problems. You see, the real challenge is, is that we know God is in charge, and we know that God is bigger, but we struggle with, well, if God's bigger and God's in charge, 
why do I have to experience this? Why is this happening? And we struggle to come to terms with that. And that's a, there's a bit of a complex answer to it. God is a holy God in heaven, and not everything that goes on in this earth is what he would want to have happen. He doesn't want us to sin. Not at all. But he has allowed it because he's not allowed us to be, he doesn't make us robots. We're more than a vacuum cleaner that you plug in and turn on and off or a computer that you expect to boot up and to do things. He's made us human beings. He's made us in his image with the ability to make decisions and make choices and and sin and disobedience is a part of those options that we have in front of us. And we've all chosen to do that. And so it's not that God likes everything that happens in your life or the consequences to it, but he has allowed it. And we have to come to terms with the reality that, yes, God is bigger than all of that. And if he wanted to stop it, all of it, he could. But he is God. And he gets to make choices and decisions and rule the way he sees fit. And it does not always turn out to be just the most fun in our life. And I struggle with that as much as you do. But at the end of the day, we have to step back and say, God, you are bigger, and I trust you, I fear you, I serve you, I obey you, and I'm going to follow you because there's something bigger going on here. I don't dare think that I'm smarter than you because I do accept that you always work everything out to my best interest, even if I don't like the pathway through that, even if that doesn't always seem to end up in the right spot, or I'm questioning, and I, like it hurts God. But God, I'm going to trust you. So knowing that God is bigger, never forgetting that means we consciously, constantly say, God, this incredible thing that I'm experiencing, thank you. That belongs to you. And God, this other thing over here that I don't like, that I wish was different, I'm going to keep praying about that too. But God, help me to endure whatever it is, the pain point, the thing that I don't like. Help me to, with grace to trust you. Help me to endure. And God, if there's something I need to do differently, help me with that. And God, I accept the realities of this difficult, messed up world, folks. That's kind of deep water faith, right? That kind of faith is hard. But Jonathan recognized that God is bigger than all of it. He didn't have a guarantee of what was going to happen. He just stuck his neck out and took that next step. And that leads me to the third thing, is that a living faith knows that God doesn't need us, but God wants to use us. Jonathan knew it wasn't about him. There's nothing special because of his bloodline or anything. He knew his dad was rash and unwise and didn't make good decisions. But he stepped out, and he didn't just believe in his mind that God was bigger. <coughs> you and I can have our life group conversations. We can talk about it, and it's easy to talk about, oh, yeah, God's bigger, God's in charge, God's in control, and God does all of these things. But it's another thing. For you and me to crawl out of the rock and out of the hole and stick our heads up there within range of the enemy and to say, let's go get it on and see what God might do with these other people. With the swords glinting and the flares and all of that going on. And that's what Jonathan did. He put feet, as it were, to his faith. He stepped out and he knew that God didn't need him. 
but that God wanted to use him, wanted to use Israel. Jonathan understood what was at stake. Saul didn't. He's sitting back in his you know, palace, fretting and worrying. He didn't really have a palace. Sitting back in his old garrison and fretting, fretting and worrying and living in fear. Not living in faith. He was living in faithlessness. By the way, fear and faith, I've said it many times, but they can never cohabitate in the same house together. Fear and faith are at opposite ends. When you and I are struggling in fear, and it comes in all kinds of different words, worry is a part of that, and anxiety can be a part of that. I'm not talking about just the physiological thing. I'm talking about the when you and I look at the world around us and we get paralyzed in fear and the anxiety of that and all of those things that they don't cohabitate. And so Jonathan didn't live in fear. He's like, enough of this. I'm sick of hiding in these holes. God's bigger. What are we doing? And he stepped up and put his neck on the line for God. He didn't do it foolishly. He said, hey, let's don't be crazy. You know, we don't need to run through that wall if God's not at work. God's not asking you to do something stupid, right, or foolish. But he said, but let's put something out there. Let's just stick our heads up. And if they say, come on up here, we'll show you a thing or two, then we know that's our sign that God is calling us up to move forward, to win this battle. And he, he did that. As I think about it in your life and my life, we are highly at risk of hiding in the rock in our faith and bearing that. And there's, there's multiple things that we could talk about, but let me give you three very practical ones that we struggle with. One is our finances. It's easy as Christians to bury our faith when it comes to money, right? Well, Sean, i got to pay the bills. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, you got winter's coming, heat's coming, all that. We all have to do that, right? And, and it's easy for us to struggle with all of the realities of finances. And yet, what God calls us is to be a people of faith. It says, God, I'm going to trust you to take care of me. And I'm going to trust that you're going to take care of me on less than what I currently make. At the end of the day, our giving, as God calls us, Old Testament, New Testament, same God and all of it is really the same approach. It's like, guys, give sacrificially and give generously and trust God to take care of you in the middle of that. That is, that is some serious faith when you step forward and say, God, I trust you to take care of me. And it's easy for our faith to have us hiding in the rock and not trusting the God of heaven to be the one that's over and above and beyond our work and all of those things. Second area where it's easy for us to hide our faith, when it comes to our ministry, to bury that in, in a rock. I remember when uh, I was first starting to teach, I was in college and was kind of, my dad was starting a church in Maine and and I began teaching the, the Bible study class with people that was, everybody in the class was older than me, every single person. And I don't think I was that young, prideful punk. I knew I was a young person. I didn't walk in there like, yeah, I got this all figured out. I'm like, many of you have been Christians longer than I've been alive. You know, I just, that was kind of my time. And I kind of learned and grew. But my knees were knocking on the inside, I'll tell you. But it was something that God was beginning to stir my heart. He was beginning to kind of pave that way and prepare me to be a pastor and all of those things. I remember the first sermons that I preached, like, oh, my goodness, going into the bathroom, I almost felt like I was going to throw up. You know, it's just like God, but God was doing it. I was trying to be faithful to what I knew God was stirring in my heart. You see, it's easy to let the fears 
cause us to bury our ministry in a hole. It's easy to do that. You know, when, when we think about life, I don't know how you, how you divide things up, but some things I do at my house, I enjoy doing. Other things I don't enjoy. If we were to compare notes, it would probably be different things. Like I, one of the things I like to do this time of year, I start feeding the birds that are outside. I put, I've made kind of a big tall bird feeder and all of that, and I like, I'm, and I, I don't mind going out first thing in a cold morning and the snow is blowing like crazy. I don't mind putting birds out there. You're like, that's nuts, you know? Why just let them fend for themselves? God said He'll take care of them. That's just, that would to you that might be a chore. To me, it's like I like looking at them. It's fun, you know. I've done it ever since I was a kid. So everybody's kind of got their different thing. So I'm not talking about chores, right? There's some stuff that we do around here. Like I've had people, oh, I love to do the coffee and I love to clean. I'm like, you love to clean? I'm like, can I, we need to take you to the doctor and have your brain checked. You know, like this is like, we need to go to a psychologist because that's not my idea of fun, you know? So we all have it differently, but I'm not talking about chores, okay? So we all have chores that we got to do, whether it's at home, at work, and even at church, there's chores, I'm talking about the ministry side of it, the things that God is calling you to do that are a little more in your sweet spot that usually are a joy. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, what are the things that bring you joy that you like to do? You know, how does that connect along the way? That's a little kind of an indicator, kind of a do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Oh, that's my spiritual gift. The joy, and you know, it's so it's not so much that it's what doesn't make you afraid because I was terrified then, but it's just I didn't have experience. But sometimes, out of fear, we don't take that next step of what God is leading us to do and calling us to do. And consequently, all the ministry and all the changed lives and all the things that God wants to accomplish don't happen because we're busy hiding in the rocks, afraid in our life. Sometimes there's a commitment issue in there. Sometimes there's a reorienting of life in there, and we're not willing to sacrifice, or we're not willing to make it a priority, because God doesn't usually hit us over the head. He'll kind of say, hey, I want you to do this. Hey, I really want you to do this. Sometimes he really steps up, and sometimes he's like, okay, you're just going to sit there and be in rebellion. All right, we're just going to go on in life. But don't hide your ministry. Don't bury it. Step up and allow God to use you, and know that you will grow, and it will be challenging. You'll have to learn. You're going to fail along the way, and all of those things, but it's okay. God's going to help you. He'll help you fight some Philistines. Third, third thing that where we in our life need to step forward in our faith to kind of come out of the rocks is sharing our faith. We live in a world today, folks, where I think there's two big things creating such fear in our lives to be kind of a out in the open, known Christian in the world around us. On one hand, we're afraid of the, um, I don't know, the stereotype and the hype and all that's out there that acts like, you know, Christians are such weirdos and crazy people and just, you know, they just have lost their marbles. They just, they don't know what they're talking about. They're just full of hate and venom and like, well, I don't want to be labeled with that because that's what my coworkers think a Christian is. You know, I can't be that. You're right. Don't be that. And we become af afraid. You know, we become afraid of the rejection, afraid of the impression, afraid of all of those kinds of things that are in our life. And it keeps us from stepping forward and willing to be kind of identified and so we, we kind of hide and cower in the middle of it. 
Now, you know, what God wants us to do is to not go out and, you know, walk down Albany with streets, you know, down the, when Gilderland with signs, Jesus saves, and, you know, all of this. I mean, you can do that. I, it wouldn't be wrong. I don't think that's really the best way to go about it. What, to me, what it seems like what God has done and is doing, and especially for us as a church, most people that end up trusting Christ at Rivers because they know somebody who's already a Christian. It's not because we did a phenomenal event at Tallacentha Park. It's not because we did this particular thing. People are like, oh my goodness, I've been waiting all my life. It's because somebody knows somebody that knows somebody that knows Jesus. And they've lived life close enough with them that there is a relationship in the middle of that. And there's life that gets shared and there's caring that happens. And along the way, Jesus gets introduced to them and they realize that Jesus is the one that they've been missing their whole life. And that's something that all of us can be a part of in our life. So the thing that, that makes sense to me to help make this simple is kind of three things for you and me to live and crawl out from the rock, you know, put our financially, put our money where our mouth is, put our ministry where our, what God's called us to do. And on the third is to put our faith out there. And the three things that are simple is to kind of pray to God, pray for those individuals in your work, in your life. And if you could show that, do you have that chart on the screen? I may have gotten it late. There it is. So if you can remember these things, it's prayer, care, and share, but it's you praying to God, you caring for them, and then along the way, sharing. And the thing is, is God does the sharing. He does it through you sometimes, but it's ultimately God that's doing it. You see, really, for you and I, when we stand before God to not be the, the Jews hiding in the rocks and the caves in our faith... It's you living your faith on the front line at work. This isn't coming, us being here together today is not us crawling out from under the rocks, right? It's you praying for your coworkers, your neighbors, your family, your friends that is in secret between you and God. And what's important is that you and I realize that every relationship you have with somebody is always a three-way relationship. There's always a triangle in there. Too often we just look like it's just me and that other person, me and that other person. It's not. God's always in that picture, always. And so we talk to God, saying, God, would you work in that person's life? God, that person needs to know you. And you should be praying for them. And, and you know, if you've got 100 coworkers, I'm not saying you need to pray for all 100 people. Maybe. I don't know. You might be the kind of person who's like, you know what, I'm going to have... Seven days a week, and I'm going to divide 100 by 7. I can't do that math very well. Is that 15, somewhere in that ballpark? You know, 15 a day. Well, I'm going to do that. Most of you probably won't do that. But find some people that you're praying for, and then ask God to help you care for them. I don't recommend that you go make lunch for them the next day. Hey, I care about you. I made you lunch today. Because your coworker will be like, that's weird. You're a little weird. Okay. You know? I don't know what caring looks like fully for you, but do what makes sense. Do it. Maybe you went and picked up, you know they like coffee, and you picked up coffee like, hey, I brought you coffee today. That's a simple caring way, but let them know. You notice them as a person. This world is increasingly lonely. Loneliness is of an epidemic proportion. Let people in your life know that you notice them. They are important to you. A lot of that, won't, most of that won't cost you a penny. It's literally you taking time out of your brain 
to notice and ask them a question. Hey, I heard you, you know, you mentioned last week you were taking your daughter to, I don't know, go look at a college. How'd that go? Like, that's caring. That's just being involved in somebody's life enough to know what's going on. For them to know that you're a not only a normal person, but you actually notice them and care about them, and you're investing your life in with them. You don't have to become best friends. You don't have to go out and go to Fenway and watch the Red Sox play or go to wherever, you know, but it's you caring for them. And then along the way, God, would you bring an opportunity for them to hear about you? And God, maybe that's through me, maybe it's not. Ultimately, the sharing is God's responsibility. He tells us to do it, but it's ultimately on Him. And it'll take the pressure off if you realize this is just not you and them. This is God in this picture. And that might be simply you inviting them to something. It might be somebody else sharing with them. It might be you sitting down sharing. It might be them hitting a stretch of life where they're discouraged and you're listening to their stories and you're asking them you know, on the way and they, they say, well, how do you do it? You say, well, here's how I make it through it. And you get a chance to share in a way that's natural and appropriate. But for you and for me, folks, this is what we are to live. This is what we're to live in this day and age where the world is screaming and losing its mind and all the craziness out there. This is what our teenagers need to live, what our kids need to live in their schools. This is what we need to live in our workplace. This is what we need to live in our neighborhoods is praying to God for people caring for them, and trusting that God is bigger, that whatever the world and however bad the enemy might seem and craziness going on, that God cares about people and he wants to, them to know him. You see, that's what Jonathan understood. He knew that life wasn't just kind of building his own kingdom or they, it wasn't just kind of you know, taking care of his wife and kids and you know, kind of working and doing that. Saul struggled to know what the whole picture is about, but Jonathan got it. What God has for us is we're to live our life. He says, guys, you're in this world for a purpose, and I saved you, and I'm moving this world to an eternity where everybody that's born in this world is moving toward heaven or hell as a reality, as their eternal reality forever. And I want you to live your life in such a way that you represent me. I don't want to just bless you so that you kind of are born and have your wonderful life and die and, you know, come live with me in heaven forever. I want you to live your life, but in such a way that I'm using you to not just bless other people's lives, but to bless them in such a way that they hear the gospel, that they can be saved, that they would know Jesus as well. Because, folks, that, at the end of the day, that's what matters. That's what's important. We need to care for people's bodies along the way. We need to help them and bless them and serve them and all of that. But at the end of the day, they are a soul before a holy, living, just God in heaven. And He wants you and me to live our life in such a way, using our spiritual gifts and all that we are and what we naturally know how to do to just being us, not afraid in our faith, being willing to put ourselves out there and be known that we're a Christian, not hiding that, not being obnoxious or jerks about it or any of those things, but living in such a way that people notice and they ask questions and it's appropriate and natural in those relationships to give them answers along the way. That's what it means for you and me to get our 
faith out from under the holes and in the rock and live that. So if you didn't hear anything else this morning, please remember prayer, care, and share. Just I know prayer is a noun and it's not a care and share. I get that. Just for the English really detailed people, just blow by that. It doesn't rhyme. Praying doesn't rhyme. You know, pray doesn't rhyme with share and care. I had to get prayer, care, and share. But just remember those things about what God is looking for you to do in other people's lives. If you do that, you're not hiding. If you do that, God will use you. And what God is wanting you to do is to be faithful and to be full of faith that he could actually use you to change other people's lives and to save them from their own sin. You're like, well, Sean, it's so impossible. It's so hard. Yeah, you were too. You were a sinner. You were no closer to God than the people around you before you knew Jesus. And God saved you, and God wants to save them. So let's trust Him. Thank you for listening. Join us every Sunday at 10 a.m. at River of Life Church or find us online on Facebook, YouTube, or at riveralbany.com.